Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of medical treatments and genital cutting. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, even more on circumcision. On episode 53, I made the potentially questionable choice to delve into the debates around circumcision. I know this is a fraught topic, and I was very nervous to talk about it. I knew I could only skim the surface, so I invited listeners to respond with their comments about what I missed. As expected, it was definitely a controversial episode. If you haven't listened yet, go check out episode 53, The First Cut is the Deepest. On this episode, I am joined again by resident man Matt Tunnicliffe, and we will dig into some of the responses we got after the last episode. As expected, the responses were divided. On this episode, we talk bias, science, and how many things we still don't know. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, I have an announcement. The first announcement is this episode is very delayed because I've been busy with several exciting things. One is that I was in the Netherlands for a couple of weeks to teach a class on cross-cultural sexuality. It was great, but very busy. Additionally, I'm writing a book. Well, sort of. I've signed on to revise a human sexuality textbook, which is going to take up a ton of time. I knew if I took on the textbook revision, I would need to drop something because I already do way too many things. I've decided it makes the most sense to pause the podcast for a few months. The textbook involves a lot of digging up of research, and so does the podcast, so I'm letting one replace the other. However, as I've been working on it, I'm already coming across ideas for future Do We Know Things episodes. Related to future episodes, I want to hear from you. What are some things you've been taught about sex that you wonder about? Any supposed facts you want me to look into? Any other burning questions about sex? I would love to incorporate more listener-driven episodes into the podcast. I'm setting up a survey, and I'll keep it open while the podcast is on hiatus for listeners to send their questions and requests for episode topics. The link is in the show notes, and I'll also post it on doweknowthings.com and on the Do We Know Things Instagram account. I'll also continue to post on Instagram at doweknowthings about sex info and bring some of my favorite facts and myths. All right, I'm back here with Matt Tunnicliffe to discuss some of the feedback we got from the last episode and to dive into some additional research and questions about circumcision. Welcome back, Matt. Thank you, Lisa Don. Good to be back on the podcast. So first of all, as expected, the feedback we got was quite split. Uh, Some people felt we downplayed the harms of circumcision, which they see as severe, while others felt that we exaggerated the harms, which they see as non-existent. It was so interesting to see the juxtaposition in my inbox. Oh, yeah, Lisa Don. I mean, we'll hear uh, a little, some comments uh, a little bit later. But uh, before that, I want to hear the stats. <laughs> this, is all, this, this show is all about the stats. So I want to hear uh, uh, the stats of uh, how many people experienced harm from circumcision or regret being circumcised. So there's not a ton of data about this, which I actually found really surprising. But there was a recent study in the U.S. of 400 men and the Of these men, 83% were circumcised, which is a bit higher than the average in the U.S. right now, and 17% were not. Researchers asked them to report on a scale of zero, so not at all, to four severely, 
what their level of regret was about their circumcision status and their level of desire to change their circumcision status. So basically, do you wish you hadn't been circumcised or do you wish you had? (laughs) And how much do you want to change whatever your status is now? And both groups had an average of just over zero, like 0.3 or whatever. So that basically means that virtually nobody is unhappy with their status and virtually nobody wants to change their status in this large representative sample. And so it doesn't seem to matter either way whether people are circumcised or not. Most people are happy with it. The only differences found between groups were that circumcised men were slightly more comfortable showing their partners their penis, which I thought was kind of interesting, and that uncircumcised men believed they had slightly more sensitivity in their penis than circumcised men. It's, that's fascinating, Lisa Dawn. I mean, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this and, you know, men think about their penises a lot. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a that's a, a statement that, you know, according to this survey, I mean, it seems like most people are satisfied with their penis. I mean, you wouldn't know it from looking at your spam folder with all the, <laughs> right. uh, you know, grow your penis, uh, you know, supplements and stuff that they're advertising. But, uh, you know, it does seem like most people are satisfied with the shape of or the, the circumcision status of their penis, according to the survey. So I think that's a fascinating um, stat. But, you know, there's obviously that small minority that is not satisfied and, mm-hmm. um, and, and advocates for one side or another. And, bo- and both those uh, arguments came out. Uh, with some of the feedback we had on the last episode. So uh, what were some of the emails that came in that, uh, that, 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 talked, that, that challenged uh, what we were talking about last, last episode? Yeah, well, we've talked about this a bit offline or off air. And I got emails where a couple of people were concerned about our discussion specifically of your circumcision. And one listener reminded us of the idea that early childhood and infant traumas can affect us in ways that we don't understand and felt that you were downplaying the harm of your circumcision. So you said something like, I'm fine now. Uh, And a a listener thought that that was, um, yeah, perhaps you not understanding the effect of the trauma on you. While another listener thought that your mother's description of there being blood everywhere was probably not true and just an exaggeration. And that listener thought that I was irresponsible to not challenge you on that point, since that much blood would be rare during circumcision. Well, let's unpack those one at a time. (laughs) First of all, sure, I believe that infant trauma uh, can cause trauma in in later life. That's I I think that's probably uh, uh, a fact. But you know, I'm also nearing fifty years old, and I think I, I have a pretty good idea of where my traumas are and aren't at the moment, and you know, my, my circumcision status is not one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think after almost, almost 50 years, I'm pretty satisfied with, uh, with, with that decision that, that my parents made so many years ago now. Um, the other listener about the blood, blood everywhere story. Yeah, it might've been, you know, it's one of those family stories that, that may have been exaggerated a little bit. I, I don't know. Obviously I was too young to, to know what was happening and uh, I was there obviously, but I couldn't be a second source on that story. <laughs> so yeah, so maybe, maybe it was exaggerated a little bit, but you know, it obviously had some effect on my, my mom and, and she, she told the story and how, how it affected her. So obviously it had effect on, on my parents and, and uh, even though I was too young to realize it at the time, as I was really just a few hours old at the time. So. Mm-hmm. And you're right, and the listeners are right, that there are likely things that happen to us in infancy that we don't remember that can potentially affect us down the road. 
But in terms of the research, it's so hard to study things like that. So we have kind of major things like the Romanian orphans, where they were not didn't experience physical touch early in their life. And so we see the effects of that on their later development, like both physical and mental. But for things like a circumcision, we just don't know the impact that that might have on someone down the line. And even other more minor traumas, uh, it's really hard to pinpoint. So the evidence, I think, points in the direction that, yes, probably there's some effect. But again, we don't know what level of trauma has to happen for there to be a long-term effect. And I would say if someone is circumcised and then comforted by a parent or adequately, probably that is just one of many things that has happened in their life that is perhaps hopefully not traumatizing. I'm just envisioning how many times a day kids fall and hurt themselves, for example. So what else did the email say? So the emails I got included a lot of statements of what listeners believed are facts. So a lot of them had a list, like a bullet-pointed list of things that perhaps I didn't address or facts that I should have included. The problem with that is that these things that were listed either don't have any evidence to support them, have mixed evidence so we can't really decisively say one way or the other, or there's just no research on the topic. And a lot of these statements just included misinformation, And I won't repeat the various statements here because I don't want to spread misinformation and I don't want to to say things that may or may not be true or things that we don't have the evidence to support yet. But I would really encourage people to look on Google Scholar or in PubMed where you can search academic research to check out the research to see if there's any evidence to support the things that they believe are facts. Even if one or a few people experience something, it doesn't mean that all people experience that or even that it's common. And I think that's a really big issue with why we need more research. So it's important to have large studies so we can document phenomena and have statistics to find out how frequently something occurs. Because I don't want to say, like, no, that doesn't happen. Because I don't know. It's very possible that, say, like 1% of people have this phenomenon happen, but because we don't have research on it, we're not documenting it. And also, it's important to know if only 1% of people have this, because then we know for 99% of the people, this isn't a problem or whatever the, the thing might be. So being able to say, like, yes, this is an issue if you get circumcised or if you don't get circumcised, but it's rare. So this can validate the people who have something happening while also putting it in the context. And it can just help debunk beliefs that aren't true. It sort of reminded me of being in a Twitter fight. You know, like there's always this huge middle that I think can find a consensus. I mean, it, it is different, but but often there's a, a middle that's not saying anything on Twitter and then two sides that are very vociferously going at each other. And then, you know, it just escalates and escalates and and, and more and more, you know, claims that can be debunked uh, come out. And uh, mm-hmm. that, that was kind of the impression I got. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yes, yeah, so but, and, and, and going back to that first survey that obviously a, a huge uh, percentage of people aren't satisfied with their circumcision status, but. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the science. Um, how do some of these um, false claims get made? Well, a, a big issue here is placebo or nocebo effects. And so for those who don't know, a placebo is essentially when you think something is happening and you take a pill or a powder or a tincture or whatever, and you're like, 
yay, I feel better. Uh, but the opposite can happen where you can have nocebo effects, which is when you take something or something happens to you, like a, a surgery, and you think it has caused you harm. And so if you believe something's making you better or causing you harm, you can actually make it so with your brain, uh, which is amazing. So, for example, there's been studies where people are told that they're taking a placebo. So they're told this is not a real drug and they still experience placebo effects. So they still say, oh, yes, my symptoms are better now, <laughs> um, even when they're told that it's a placebo. So it's a wild thing that your your brain is more powerful than you imagine. And I'm not saying this is the case for everyone, but if we think about things like sensitivity, which is a big debate in the circumcision world. So if you believe that your penis is desensitized because you were circumcised without your consent, your brain can make that happen. And that's why it's really important to have the controlled studies where these things are assessed in ways that are less subjective and less likely to be influenced by one person's beliefs. And this is something that's often talked about with aphrodisiacs. So there's really no aphrodisiac that you can take that's going to make you a better lover or like more horny or what? whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'm shocked. Shocked. But when people take what they believe are aphrodisiacs or eat food like oysters, right. um, they believe that it makes them more aroused or more desirous. And so that's what happens. <laughs> Yikes. Don't tell the oyster industry in New Brunswick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who knew how scandalous oysters were? <laughs> so let's talk about some things maybe we didn't mention in the last episode. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that came up in the emails were, was the point that there are nerve endings in the foreskin, right? So if you're removing this part of the body that has nerve endings, that is sensitive, then it is possible the person has less capacity for sensation, right? You're moving a sensation-filled part of the body. Uh, and related to that, though, you know, you don't really know what you don't know. So someone who's circumcised, in general, is happy with their level of sensation. And someone who's not circumcised is also, in general, happy with their level of sensation. And so it's hard to compare. And and yeah, we just don't really know, unless we're talking about people who are circumcised maybe as adults, like what is the difference in sensitivity there? Like, do they feel less sensations during sex? We don't know. But that's a question that could be easily answered, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With with more study. That's mm -hmm. the, you know, I think that's uh, mm -hmm. the, the theme of of the whole podcast, really, yeah. if not just this, this episode. <laughs> exactly. Something that I thought was important to mention was that in the last episode, I talked about a study where they swabbed the foreskin of uncircumcised kids, and those kids had higher levels of bacteria that could potentially cause infections like a UTI. But what a listener pointed out to me was that when you remove this foreskin, you're also getting rid of that good bacteria. And I think that was a point I overlooked and should be mentioned. So within our body, like whether we're talking about the vagina, whether we're talking about the folds of the foreskin, there are all sorts of bacteria. Some are good and promote health things, and some are negative and promote infections. And so by removing the foreskin, you're removing both the bad bacteria and the good bacteria. So I think that was a point that I overlooked and should have been mentioned. Another thing that someone brought up was just how limited the research is that exists on circumcision, right? And we've talked about that multiple times in the last episode and this episode already. And there really is just so much we don't know. And part of the issue is to get good, reliable evidence, you need large samples, well-controlled studies, 
But most of the studies answering the kinds of questions that we've been talking about on this podcast are limited to small samples or have issues that need to be corrected in follow-up studies. And we're just so far from having all of the answers on this. And I think that's part of the reason we still have so much debate about these various controversies on both sides of the issue, because we don't have definitive evidence. And as we keep saying, we just need more research. Amen. And one thing that a listener pointed out was that the UK, in the UK, the British Medical Association requires that when parents make this decision, they frame their choice in terms of the child's interest rather than their personal preference or desire. And I don't know how they control for that. Like, do they say, like give the parents a quiz and say, like, what is the reasons that you're doing this? Or Right. I mean, it, that's a kind of fascinating story. I think mm-hmm. about, you know how you make a decision at that time mm-hmm. and then how it affects your child's life and trying trying to project into the future for your child's life. Yeah. When you're new parents and there's so much coming at you and, and you know, that first 24 hours is a pretty stressful time. So yeah, you know, it, 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 it's a, it's an interesting question, but yeah, I'm not sure how you, how you do it or make a plan for it when, you know, in those, in those days before birth. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's one good step to just say to parents, Hey, you should be thinking about this, like not just doing it. Cause so it looks like you, like you should have good reasons, like health reasons, religious reasons, et cetera. Um, but there's no test to ver- done to verify if parents actually understand all the info before decision making. But I feel like that's often the case with a lot of medical procedures. Like you're asked to sign this informed consent. And yeah. yes, you can ask questions. And yes, you can do your own research. But a lot of people just read the information and sign it, I think, in a lot yeah, of cases. Yeah, or just trust their doctors. Like, yeah, mm-hmm, whatever, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm good. And, uh, and then and sometimes don't have all the information they need. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Then there's the big heavy issue that just criticizing circumcision at all can be seen as anti-Semitic. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, obviously, faith uh, plays a big role in in circumcision um, in a lot of cultures and, and religions. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's also um, funny because you know we see this falling rate of of circumcision in Canada. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, as much as you read the news and perhaps mm-hmm. anti-Semitism is on the rise around the world, I don't think it correlates with the sort of fall mm-hmm. in circumcision rates in, in, in Canada, especially. Mm-hmm. I do understand, though, I can see that the like talking about how s- circumcision is potentially harmful or bad or wrong, like that kind of narrative right. um, can potentially be seen as an anti-Semitic dog whistle in, in some circles. So I just wanted to make sure that peop- that we are careful when we think about it and talk about it and the way we use language when discussing the pros and cons of circumcision. Indeed. All right, what else? Well, a researcher friend and I had a few conversations about the origins of circumcision. So this friend basically said, okay, you're getting into all this nitty gritty of like the bacteria, the this, the that, like sensitivity. But how did it start in the first place? And why did it start in the first place? Like, why did this cultural practice evolve? And it turns out there's not a lot of research on this. Like, we basically don't know. Both my researcher friend and I kind of tried to dig around. And apparently there's evidence that there was circumcision in Egyptian hieroglyphics from like three or 4,000 years ago. But we don't know why and how this practice started. Uh, 
But my researcher friend started speculating, which is always fun to do with no evidence. <laughs> right. Kind of uh, antithetical to what we do on the on the podcast, but yes. uh, this wild speculation. But, you know, we can roll with it. <laughs> yes. But the, this is where science starts often, right? right so saying right. like, okay, we have this phenomena. We don't understand it. What are all the possible reasons this could happen? And then you can go from there to try to figure out like which thing is the accurate one or the correct one. I'll bite. What are what are the uh, what are the reasons you think that all right. this evolved? Well, one of them is that the practice emerged in places where there's a lot of sand, and so perhaps there was this issue of sand getting under the foreskin, causing infections or irritations. And if you think like pre-humanoid ancestors um, would mostly be mating in trees, for example, and then as we evolve and came out of trees and are having sex on the ground, um, there could be the potential of sand getting in there causing infections. Um, and so maybe this was seen as a solution to that problem. You had me at sand in the foreskin. I was like, ah, yeah, yes. yeah. And if you look at various indigenous groups around the world, so many of them have very ancient techniques, um, like body modification techniques. So this could be just maybe a form of body modification that was sort of to to solidify your tribal identity. Um, so we see like in the Inuit, um, the facial tattoos is something that's been going on for a long time. There are other cultures where there are various piercings. Um, so maybe this is a specific thing related to tribal identity. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's certainly a, a hypothesis. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And if circumcision began before clothing, uh, my friend argued it could have been about the look, like the importance of showing the penis. So humans are bipeds. You can see the front of our bodies, like all of it, as opposed to other animals that are quadrupeds. And so removal of the foreskin can make the penis look bigger because the head is more obvious and there's the potential it could be more intimidating to rivals uh, or it could be more attractive to mates. Uh, you know, maybe as we evolve, fashion evolves, we'll mm -hmm. bring that back, uh, you know, penis as fashion. Yeah. Uh, you never know. You never know. Yeah. I and mean, you see this like in like penis as fashion or like kind of emphasizing the penis in other eras, like the cod piece. Right. right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So, yeah. so I mean, you know, it could, uh, that, that certainly has merit that, you know, obviously there were fewer clothes back then and um, and it was it was a statement mm -hmm. to, uh, to have your penis a certain way. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Like, mm -hmm. These are all fascinating ideas of how circumcision got into our, you know, became, went global, for example. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have any other ideas, any other possibilities for why this cultural practice became? You know, I, th I really think it went back to men think about their penises a lot. <laughs> there was this extra bit of skin. Some person just said, you know, how guys like to mess with tools. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I'll just take this off. I think that's probably how it started, and mm -hmm. then everyone started following that. So that's that's my theory: is uh, some guy with tools, a little bit of time on his hands, wanted to build something or modify something, mm -hmm. and went to town on his own penis. That is entirely possible. And then, yeah, we would need to know how this became this embedded cultural exactly practice, how, how this took right? off and, and and went global. So, right. Yeah. 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 So one of the things related to it going global is this idea of Western countries going into Africa, uh, sub-Saharan Africa specifically, and promoting circumcision as an HIV prevention. And there is a lot of debate about that research 
uh, that we talked about a bit on the last episode. And I got a lot of feedback about that. Some people saying like those studies have been debunked. Uh, some people pointing out correctly that the the use of condoms was not controlled for in these studies. So apparently there was also promotion of condom use or there was supposed to be promotion of condom use. And at least one study found that the circumcised men were more likely to use condoms and that could potentially relate to the reduced transmission and receiving of HIV in that population. And researcher Sarah Rudrum has done research on the types of campaigns that were run in Africa and how technically they were supposed to promote condoms, but they didn't. Like a lot of the public health campaigns were just like, be good, get circumcised without talking about the behavioral things you can do to reduce HIV or human papillomavirus. And also just the the idea of focusing on circumcision as the thing to fix it when the data actually shows circumcision uh, does protect the penis haver uh, who is circumcised, but it doesn't seem to confer any protection to female partners. Uh, all these studies looked at male-female pairings. And that things like condoms or HPV vaccines, like all these other things would be way more effective than promoting circumcision for this population. Like it could be circumcision in combination with some other things. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. But the idea of calling circumcision a vaccination in and of itself is, I think, a bit dubious. Yeah, they're completely different procedures. Yes, uh, but that has been in the research literature. They often refer to it that way, which, um, yes, it can reduce the risk for the people getting circumcised. But, you know, there are so much better ways to prevent HIV and to prevent other uh, forms of STIs. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. All right. Well, we didn't cover everything that came in in the various emails and conversations I had, but I think we did a good job of kind of tackling some of the main issues that came up repeatedly. So thank you so much for being here again, Matt. Thank you, Lisa Dawn. And I have to say, as this uh, podcast goes on hiatus for a few months, I've learned a lot over the last 55 episodes. I think I said this (laughs) on a a talk that we did, but not in the podcast that, you know, we know so much about something like the moon, which is, you know, it's important, you know, and we spend trillions of dollars getting to it and things like that. Mm -hmm. But sexuality is something that everyone experiences and there's 7 billion people on the planet that are all having sex and and the the huge uh, holes in, in research is phenomenal that you've sort of uncovered and, and, and take a look at and it just needs more study. It's like, glad you're doing what you're doing. Absolutely. I agree. Yes. The vast majority of people are having sex. Of course, we also have asexual people, yeah. some of whom have sex, some of whom don't. Uh, but yeah, I think this is something that affects the vast majority of humans, and we need more information, as we say. Yeah. Well, thanks for being along on this journey of 55 episodes, and I'll see you in a few months. All right. Bye, Lisa. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I am going to be putting up a survey. There's a survey link in the show notes. It's also on doweknowthings.com and on the Do We Know Things Instagram. And I would love to hear from you, your questions, queries, really anything you want to know about sex that you think you've maybe been misinformed about or you're just curious about. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. 
I'm Lisa Dawn Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Do We Know Things, and you can email me at DoWeKnowThings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is on hiatus for a few months. Look for new episodes in late 2022. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.